You are listening to Arrive by The Cycling Podcast, supported by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Lionel, where are you, Lionel? In fact, I can see where you are. I, you are <laughs> I'm in the cycling pod car in Aldenada, uh, the finish of the Tour of Flanders. You look like you're poised. Just sort of you look like you're poised to chase a breakaway. You look like the breakaway is going to appear over your left shoulder any moment. And then you're going to uh, say, sorry, Dane, I've got to go. Well, and you're going to yeah. lock into fifth gear straight away. And I'm in the passenger wheel spin I'm off in the passenger the seat, Daniel. I, I could do a sticky bottle, though, couldn't I? Wind down the window and do a sticky bottle, yeah. maybe. But yeah, I've come away from the town square, which, uh, now that both races are finished, does have the feel of um, quite a long music festival winding up. There are people stumbling a little bit, people who who uh, may well have headaches tomorrow, perhaps, overindulged on Tour of Flanders Day. A few people in tight-fitting shirts and very shiny belts. <laughs> yeah, being being Belgian, oh, possibly. Well, I mean, let's not defame an entire country's dress sense. No. But uh, there's people in fancy dress. There's lots of cyclists. There's, you know, there's loud music uh, blaring out of the bars. Uh, but it does feel like uh, the Tour of Flanders is winding down a little bit. It's also absolutely freezing cold. The coldest Tour of Flanders I can remember. Um, so I didn't fancy sitting outdoors either. So I've retreated back to the cycling podcast to record this episode of Aruve and wrap up what was an extraordinary race. Pog weather, wasn't it? Um, I think I've said this on the podcast before. There used to be this concept in German cycling of Ullewetter, um, Jan Ulrich weather, which was invariably warm, sunny, or about 30 degrees. And as we know, a certain Slovenian tends to go well in cold sort of misty, damp conditions, doesn't he? Well, he certainly did today. I mean, you asked in our podcast last week where we discussed the Grand Prix E3 Saxo Bank race where Pogacar, Van Aert and Van der Poel went to the finish together and we were pondering how does Pogacar win one of these races when he's up against the power of Van Aert and Van der Poel? Well, he does it the way he did it today, which was attacking more or less every time the course gave him the opportunity to do so in the last 55 kilometres. It it was extraordinary to watch. I mean, it was just one attack on uh, the Quadamont and then the Koppenberg and then I think the only place that he didn't attack was on the Kreuzberg, which was where um, Matthew van der Poel tried to do something, wasn't it? Um, Are Are we into the official... Is this the official, what do we call it? The monologue of the monuments? Well, has it started? I guess it has. We've rolled straight into it. We've we've attacked off the front with the monologue of the monument. Uh, Yeah, Pogacar won the Tour of Flanders. That's his third monument. It's third out of five. So he's collecting them. He also hinted afterwards that Paris-Roubaix is on the menu at some point, but he needs to beef up a bit for an assault on Paris-Roubaix and their heavier cobbles at some point in the future. And, well... Tour, Tour de France winners don't win the Tour of Flanders, do they? He's only the third rider who's won both the Tour de France and the Tour of Flanders, the other being Eddie Merckx and Louis Bobet. That in itself tells the story. And it was a race 
what a race, really. I mean, 100 kilometres it took for the first real break of the day to go. It was just... Well, I didn't have eyes on that early part of the race because I was out on the course, but it was just uh, every time I looked at a screen something was happening it was like just sort of some kind of whirlpool of movement at the front but nothing was sticking it was it was fast it was furious and it took as i say 100 kilometers for anyone to really get away and that was guillaume van kiersburg of bingo jasper de boist of lotto dan hool of trek elmar reinders of jaco and filippo colombo of q36.5 and they didn't have a great deal of a lead um, but they were then joined by some serious power. First, Tim Malier of Sudar Quickstep, Jonas Ruch of EF Education, and Ugo Uhl of Israel Premier Tech. I mean, we were all in a pickle with that, weren't we? Two riders called Uhl in the in the front group. And then the real quality came across. Nathan Van Hoydonk of Jumbo Visma, Matteo Trentin of UAE, Benoit Cosnefoy, Florian Vermeersch, Mads Pedersen, Jonathan Narvaez, Kasper Askreen, Nielsen Paulis, Fred Wright, Stefan Kung, Matteo Jorgensen. What a group. All of them potential podium finishers. It was also a race of some serious crashes. There was a big one early on. We know Julian Alaphilippe was down, Wout van Aert was down, and then there was the insane one. I mean, I've only seen it on a phone screen, um, but it was dangerous stuff from Philippe Masiuk of Bahrain Victorious, or should that be Bahrain Hazardous? Because he was riding on the edge of the road, you know, not on the road, he was on the path, and then it changed from tarmac to soggy grass, and he tried to hop back into the road, and as he did, he veered sideways and took down, well, it must have been two, three dozen riders, and he was disqualified for that move, and has apologised on social media, because it was a really bad one. And, he apologised, oh. he apologised within minutes on social media. Are you suggesting that somebody else apologised on his behalf? No, I'm not. I'm saying good on him for... I mean, he was straight on the phone and it was literally 10 or 15 minutes. Yeah, I mean, it was, it's, it's, it's a real illustration of why that rule about not riding on the paths on the edge of the road is, is actually important. You know, yes, you can gain five, ten places coming up the inside, but the danger to the riders behind and to the side when hopping back onto the road well that was a bad example we also saw a really nasty downhill crash which claimed Matej Mohoric and Biniam Gamay among others and then the story of the race really the last 53 kilometres wasn't it UAE team Emirates absolutely drilled it into the bottom of the Arda Quadamont Pogacar attacked for the first time he was then picking up riders who were getting dropped from that front group and then on the Koppenberg he went again and that's where he really opened up the gap Matthew van der Poel and Wout van Aert did follow Tom Pidcock of Ineos was stranded in no man's land with uh, a lead weight for company really Christophe Laporte, Jumbo Visma teammate of van Aert's of course, not ideal company for the chase and then that express train that we saw at E3 was picking up passengers and dropping them off at the very next station as they caught all of the riders dropped from the brake there was a moment of drama for van der Poel on the Tyenberg just as they hit the cobbles and his chain slipped and that meant that he had to chase to close on the, uh, the gap, close up the gap I should say, and Pogacar put on the pressure yet again. And then Mads Pedersen went clear from the front group. This was with 30 kilometres to go and for about half an hour we had this incredible twin race, didn't we? Pedersen, will he stay away? Pogacar and co, will they close up? What's going to happen in the, you know, the final 15 or 20 kilometres? It was on the Kreuzberg that Van Aert was struggling and dropped. We saw his teammate Van Hoydonk sit back up from the break to try and help Van Aert get back on before the 
final time up the Quadamont and they nearly made it but Pogacar hit them again as soon as they got onto the cobbles and he does this kind of acceleration settles into a rhythm and then seems to go again and people can't live with it even Matthew van der Poel couldn't go with him he caught Pedersen before the top of the Quadamont and from there led to the finish a quite extraordinary performance uh, van der Poel great chase could see Pogacar ahead no doubt on the run in but couldn't catch him and then I thought another ride of the day Pedersen pulling off that incredible sprint to beat Van Aert to third place Nielsen Paulis what a spring for him fifth but it was a day where really anyone who finished there within sort of two three minutes of Pogacar had a fantastic ride what did you make of it? Well, Lionel, it was a classic, uh, very much a classic edition, wasn't it, of the Tour of Flanders? I mean, it was a rich, multi-layered cake, wasn't it? I believe there's a famous cake in Slovenia called Kremschnita, um, which is sort of a multi-layered gatto um, of a cake. And it, it really was, wasn't it? I mean, we'll talk about the different phases of the race in a minute. But um, from the first hour, there were things happening that impacted, that clearly, very transparently impacted the the outcome of the race and you know we we said a couple of weeks ago that Milan San Remo is a race that is analyzed with a microscope and you know Tour of Flanders you could you didn't need a bit of a telescope to you needed to sort of zoom out and and try to piece together how everything was fitting into the overall narrative and, and whether the pieces were ever going to come back together I mean at one point it looked as though um, Pogacar Van Aert and Van der Poel's respective gooses were cooked with 70 kilometers to go um, I suppose fortunately for the neutral spectator that wasn't the case and as far as Pogacar's performance was concerned, I mean, in a, in a career, in a young career of virtuoso performances, this was right up there, wasn't it? And, you know, there's no doubt, and this has started already, and it probably started there in Udenada, and you've been privy to it already, Lionel, the conversation will begin, will have begun already about Pogacar and Merckx and where he already stands or what kind of trajectory he's on in terms of the history of the sport, the greats of the sport. I mean, he's 24 years old. You mentioned his Hall of Monuments already. He's already won three of them, Liège, uh, Lombardy and Tour of Flanders now. Just as a, as a comparison, by the start of 1970, Merckx had won three San Remos, the Tour, uh, 68 Giro, he'd been disqualified from the 69 Giro, tested positive, but he'd also won a Worlds, he'd won a Liège, he'd won uh, Paris-Roubaix. But they're, they're quite close, they're quite closely matched. Um, I should also say that 1969, the end of 1969 is a bit of a turning point in Merckx's career because that was when he had a crash in a track race in Blois that he claimed changed him forever and he claimed he wasn't ever the same rider again however he did well the next year he won Paris-Nice Gent-Wevelgem Paris-Roubaix flesh well on in the spring then he won the Giro then he won the Tour by 13 minutes so to the outsider he continued very much on the same trajectory but Pogacar um, you know two Tours de France already um, those monuments we talked about and countless other well a lot of other stage race wins one day wins already um, it's starting to look a little bit Merckx-ish it is and it's the versatility isn't it to see a rider who can do the damage he can do in the big mountains as long as the weather isn't absolutely scorching hot and then the way he raced today uh, 
I mean, it, the era of specialization supposedly was upon us where riders, you know, the, 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 the specter of the types of races that riders could genuinely contest was supposed to be narrowing and we've got riders now well i mean pogachar really but i mean van art also to an extent you know the types of races that they can do well in is is broadening back out again and uh well the, it was not just um the 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 manner of of his um victory today pogachar but just how much courage it required to make that move when he made it knowing the power of the riders ahead of him because it's kind of dangerous bridging across to that group and not knowing who was at the front you know maybe uh, I know you had Matteo Trentin up there as a, as a useful teammate but there was a lot of danger up there it was it was like he was putting himself into a more difficult situation than sitting tight and hoping it was going to come back together but I take your point perhaps there was a point where it wasn't going to come down because the gap was staying fairly steady and no one was really um, taking up a sort of conventional chase, largely because all of the big teams, Ineos, Sudal, Quickstep, EF, Bahrain, Groupama, um, they all had riders up the road and well, Trek and Lotto, of course, as well. I mean, it was basically a powerhouse group. So it was a group. It was a group of riders that if that had been a transitional stage on the Tour de France, as soon as you saw the composition of that group, you would say there is no doubt this is going to the finish. Yeah, good point. And like I say, that meant that the chase behind, uh, if Pogacar wanted to put himself in the conversation, he had to do it himself. And of course, would have known that Van der Poel and Van Aert would react uh, as they did. But like I say, it was just those repeated accelerations at every opportunity he had. And the opportunities he had were basically five or six. And he took all bar one of them, really. And, and he didn't really have to do much on the Kreuzberg because uh, Van der Poel was kind of uh, helping do the job for him. Uh, yeah, a virtuoso performance, really. And uh, yeah, what, what can you say? I mean, three monuments out of five. Who was the last rider to really have a genuine hope of of completing the set Philippe Gilbert and, and he was um, always going to struggle with uh, uh, Milan San Remo wasn't it where he uh, you know came up short and um, Pogacar yeah he did say actually that he feels that Milan San Remo might be the most complicated one to win uh, which presumably means that at some point he thinks Paris-Roubaix will be you know within his sights you talked about the way he went away on the well both times or second and third time at the Oda Quaramont, uh, we saw how well that climb suits him. I mean, this was widely predicted. Alan Piper, his former director sportif, spoke in Le Keep this morning about how um, he had to make his move on the last time up the Quaramont. But it, it is curious to me, or it has been curious over the last couple of years, just to see how well he does go on that particular climb. Because, okay, it is the longest climb on the route. I think it's the longest climb on the route and longest of the significant ones anyway. Um, but it's not particularly steep. And it's a climb that's been... Uh, it, 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 some riders, it's been kryptonite to some riders over the last 10 years or so since the route has been changed and we've had the Paterberg Quaramont finishing circuit. And Pogacar just seems to, well, he seems to ride onto there with a blowtorch in his hands. And he just, well, you know, I, I've coined this term Pogsinerate. And that's what he did twice today. I actually thought the first time, that, or sorry, the second time out of the three that he went up there today, I thought he was making a mistake by dropping... Um, Van der Poel, Van Aert et al. Not only 
because that left him alone and okay they they did come back to him and he did get a bit of help but also because I thought he was intimidating them he was showing his cards and that that might cause him problems further down the road but um, it all worked out for him crucially there are some steep sections on the Elder Quadamont significantly there's where it goes from smooth to cobbles at the bottom it's pretty steep we saw him accelerate there and and make hay while well the sun wasn't shining it was absolutely freezing but like I say <laughs> the the small opportunities he had even if it was only two three hundred meters of road where he did have an opportunity to really turn the screw he he took those opportunities perhaps mindful of e3 the other Friday when we you know you're saying there was it a risk to get rid of van der Poel and van art that early well possibly but he already knew the other scenario if he'd just ridden through those groups with those three riders it might have been easier for other people to cling on for a start meaning a bigger more complicated finish and he would still have had the problem of trying to beat uh, van der Poel who is who is more powerful in those um, sprints I know it's slightly uphill but uh, that's a van der Poel finish isn't it so he he, he probably well he, he took the best opportunity that was there for him which was to get rid of everybody and hope that he had enough when the course didn't suit his strength to just keep that gap to the chase and well he did it and you mentioned Lionel his repeated attacks these sort of uh, repeated blows to the to the ribs really of his rivals an interesting sort of inversion of how he rode well Sam Raymond, for example, we spoke a couple of weeks ago about how in 2022 his tactic had been repeated attacks on the Poggio, okay, in a short space of time, and that hadn't worked. And he'd gone away and revised that, and he he decided that the way to win was the coup de grace on the on the Poggio, one huge attack. Whereas today, as you say, it was difficult to avoid the conclusion that well those repeated attacks were absolutely key and it was in a very very hard race again for reasons that we'll probably discuss a um, a greater length in a minute that's just were adding to the attrition by forcing Van Aert and and Van der Poel to react to his attacks was absolutely key there's also I think the those three riders now I mean it's no secret to anyone we've sort of dubbed them what did you call them the three bears um you know, we've all got our different epithets for them and they I think have not been drawn into this sort of media narrative but I think they are sort of playing along and enjoying and reveling in this idea of the three of them at the on the pinnacle of the sport going head to head every time they get the opportunity and there's an inevitability a sort of fatality about the way they follow each other's attacks even when it might not necessarily make sense it's hard to imagine a scenario um, in any big race now where one of those three would attack and the other two wouldn't react and so every time Pogacar did attack he knew that they were going to have to follow him and he knew that he was he was sort of sticking daggers in their legs the cycling podcast is supported by science in sport science in sport fueled by science well and it seems a little bit unfair to talk about where it went wrong for van der poel and van Aert when they finished respectively second and 
forth. But again, you know, I just mentioned the, the media narrative of this great um, trifecta, the great triumvirate in golf. There used to be a, the great triumvirate, don't ask me who they were, James Braid or someone like that in the end of the 19th century um, and two others. Maybe, uh, what was it? Willie Park? Something like that. Anyway, sorry. Um, where did it go wrong for those three? There was, well, the first hour of the race was really intriguing. I didn't expect it to be intriguing and to have a big impact on what followed but it was because we had this situation where Alperson de Koenig were caught napping um Mathieu van der Poel was caught napping and for about 20 kilometers they were forced to chase um Bahrain victorious had put the pressure on at the front in crosswinds the gap went to about 40 seconds and they used up quite a lot of resources um Alpecin de Koenig obviously van der Poel himself wasn't pulling but you had guys like Sylvain Dillier pulling Søren Crow Anderson um other key domestiques they then lost Søren Crow Anderson with 120 kilometers to go I mean ordinarily we would have thought that he might even be an alternative card for them I don't know whether he had some other physical problems or he was just exhausted by the work he'd done earlier but you know you you, you think about the margin that Pogacar had when he came over the Paterberg for the final time it was about 14 seconds and at that point you really felt that it could still go either way and you do just wonder about the roles of the respective teams and how Alpecin de Koenig had made a bit of a hash of things. There was another moment later on, I think it was before the, um, was it before the Mollenberg with 120 kilometers to go again, where Van der Poel was, was caught adrift slightly, it only lasted, um, well, it was, it was moments. However, there again, I think they spent a bit of energy that they would ordinarily have liked to conserve and it was just a bit of a loose performance in those first 150 kilometers and as for Van Aert it was also from Jumbo Visma a performance that I don't think many people expected it was quite a passive performance they didn't look very compact they didn't look as though they were riding as a team um, for large portions of the race well certainly we didn't see a big sort of swarm of those yellow and black jerseys in the peloton all riding together they had they had some bad luck Tosh van der Sander crashed um, Eduardo Fini crashed as well and Van Aert himself Maybe we'll find out later, but he also definitely went down in the crash that we mentioned, uh, the Masajuk, uh, sorry, Machajuk, the Machajuk crash. And quite a few people pointed out afterwards that Van Aert was riding with what was blood streaming down. I think it was his left leg as well. It didn't look bad on TV, certainly. Um, well, we just saw him standing at the side of the road, kind of sorting his bike out and getting back on without too much fuss, but that may well have affected him as well. Yeah, they, I mean, Christophe Laporte was kind of stuck in no man's land, wasn't he, with uh, Tom Pidcock? I mean, not necessarily a disaster for Jumbo Visma at that stage, uh, but he couldn't ride. Uh, it was just kind of sitting there thinking if this does come back together he, he could still be a factor but wouldn't have wanted to tow Pidcock across and, and take another dangerous rider into the picture they of course had Van Hooydonk in the break which was the perfect move but then there was a bit of kind of dithering about and I mean Van Hooydonk I suspect probably chose that moment to sit up because that was where there was quite a strong headwind and give Van Aert a bit of a help to try and get back on just before the Quadamont and it almost worked but I mean, given that Pogacar was almost certainly going to 
attack again. Uh, if even if he had made contact in time, probably would have gone backwards straight away. Um, and I think they probably you know missing Dylan Van Bala, who's not been uh, well not able to race today I think we'll be back for Paris Bay and perhaps still recovering from the crash a week or so ago but yeah they've dominated the Flandrian Classics haven't they they've the worst result today and before today sorry was Olav Coy second to Jasper Philipson in uh, whichever one of the very similar races that was Va- the, uh, the, well, the it's panel. the one they didn't win, Daniel. That's the that's the one. Yeah, <laughs> the one right, they yeah. didn't win. Yeah. Uh, and fourth place today will feel like a slightly um, deflated party balloon for them this evening, I'm sure. Uh, but it wasn't for the want of trying. Yeah, and you could also say that they and UAE rode pretty analogous races in the sense that they both had that one rider. UAE had Trentin and Jumbo Visma had Van Hoydonk in the group, in the Asgreen group and the Fred Wright group. And, you know, they were playing an interesting role. Trentin particularly, Trentin's one of those riders who he's very sort of animated on the bike. He's quite flamboyant. So you always notice him. You always notice what he's doing. He's always sort of looking over his shoulder, talking to breakaway companions and so so on and so forth. So you, you really noticed him in that group. And sometimes it looked as though he was spoiling. He was stopping the gap from going out too far. Other times it looked as though he was just trying to time his effort and his breakaway group, the breakaway group's effort so that Pogacar made it back to them at exactly the right moment. Because that was a question that I had at one point, you know, are they going to time this perfectly? Or is Trentin going to time this perfectly so that, you know, that doubt we had, can Pogacar ride away on his own over the Paterberg? Is it going to be the case that he finds... Trentin waiting for him at the top of the Ode Quaramont or the Paterberg and and that really would have been um, a masterful piece of teamwork but so the UAE and Jumbo Visma played the same tactic really uh, as far as the breakaway was concerned Trentin's a faster rider so you could say that was advantage UAE but they both also you know they let that group go out to th- around about three minutes and then they both started pulling at about the same time um, just on the approach to the Eau de Quaremont, the second time up the Eau de Quaremont. So, you know, it's fine margins, isn't it? Had Van Aert had better legs, we could be sitting here talking about UAE having been a bit passive as well. Um, UAE also lost Tim Wellens. It would be interesting to know what they had in mind for him. But, you know, when... Wellens came down in that crash, the Magistrate uh, crash that we've mentioned. It was funny, when I first saw it, it looked very much like Pogacar, but, you know, that's another facet of Pogacar's riding. You almost never expect the guy to crash because he always seems to be in the right position. And in the build-up to Flanders, uh, his director sportifs were talking about this, this characteristic of his riding that, you know, he didn't particularly need to do recons and even last year when he rode the race for the first time he didn't really struggle um, as far as the sort of savoir faire of Flanders that we you know in the media we mythologize we've talked about for years you have to know you know every gutter and every cobblestone section um, that wasn't really a problem for Pogacar um, there was a nice line from his uh, a colleague of ours writing for L'Equipe um, this morning he said that Pogacar we talked about this picture that Pogacar posted last week he'd gone back to the Cote d'Azur and he was just sunbathing with a Tour de France bucket hat and um, I think Gaëtan Chéhaire our colleague from L'Equipe said something like with all the zenness of a koala on his branch and that pretty much 
that sums up um, Pogacar, doesn't it? But uh, ju- just on him as well, Lionel, I mean, when we talk about where his career goes from here and uh, I suppose you'll, you'll just have to indulge us for, for having this kind of discussion after a big win. But the thing that really intrigues me about him as against, for example, Merckx is his fuel source. You know, Merckx was, he became known as the cannibal and he had this insatiable appetite for winning, which was, a it seemed like a, a kind of dark force, almost uh, the, there was some sort of, whether it was kind of insecurity or paranoia or something kind of dark that was propelling him forward. With Pogaccio, it seems to be the opposite. His life force, his fuel, as far as racing is concerned and winning is concerned, seems to be enjoyment and the the sheer thrill of it and you know we'll, we'll, it remains to be seen whether that is a, as sustainable a fuel source as the Merck's version yeah he does seem to sort of race towards the light doesn't he and uh, it seizes those opportunities and you're talking there about that sense of timing I mean the the, the fact that he caught Pedersen at the top of the Aldequaramont I mean could have worked out differently could have been quite dangerous actually having Pedersen, the rider of his caliber and his sprint finish latch onto the wheel but i suppose he would have had the confidence of you know there is still um the final climb of the paterberg to go and that's a very hard climb that late in the race it's steep as well played to pogachar's strength again but i do think when you look at the top 10 today um all of them i think can be satisfied with a job well done because they all raced to win and you know it, it could have gone the other way and that group might have fought it out amongst themselves i mean nielsen powerless one of the rides of the day apparently crashed a couple of times lost his bike computer in one of those crashes and then just raced on instinct and whatever knowledge he could get from the riders around him and from uh, andreas clear in the team car so there's, there's a cat there's a cat eye mitty too <laughs> in a gutter somewhere <laughs> just just off the the Paterberg. Yeah, Pedersen I've already mentioned with the the strength to get on the podium after, you know, risking all with his solo attack, which uh, looked like it might be the genius move. Get away before the Pogacar Express comes steaming through. Stefan Kung for Group Armour, he said afterwards that uh, his teammate Valentin Madouas, who pulled out, had sort of stomach problems. So uh, he was uh, racing, you know, knowing that all of the team's hopes rested on him and I thought he did a good job uh, and we've given Sudal Quickstep a little bit of criticism for their non-show in a lot of the classics this spring Kasper Askreen I thought did the best he could with the legs he had and uh, put his nose in the wind a few times and then you know Fred Wright Matteo Jorgensen potential future winners of a race like this and uh, I mean Jorgensen just just impresses I mean he just looks so so comfortable looks perhaps today like uh you know if he'd taken a risk a bit like he did the other day you know something might have played out for him that's said pk the voice of radio tour to remind me to tell you that this episode of Aive is sponsored by the hammerhead Carew 2 cycle computer and this was me descending the poggio a couple of weeks ago tell you what the yellow line on the hammerhead's actually really helping i can just glance down and check where the bends are. (laughs) 
as you heard there, I found following the yellow line as I went round the hairpin bends on the Poggio quite helpful because I could just glance down without really taking my eyes off the road and just get a visual steer on when the next bend was coming up. And it's that kind of at-your-fingertips data that really changes the riding experience, I think, because on the Hammerhead Karoo 2, you can get information about all the basics like how far you've still got to ride if you programmed in a set route how fast you've gone what your average speed is and all of that but also with the unique exclusive climber feature you get a real impression of just what is ahead of you when you're going uphill and as i experienced on the descent of the poggio the yellow line just gave me something to follow as i went down Now, the climber feature really has transformed my riding when I'm on unfamiliar roads because as I reach a climb, the data tells me how far there is to the top, how steep the sections are. And so when I know a steep section is coming up, I know to regulate my effort, maybe push on and get through it and then settle into a bit more of a rhythm as the gradient shallows out. Or if I'm feeling bad, I know that there's not too far to go to the top. Anyway, the Hammerhead Karoo 2 cycle computer is the most advanced that there is out there. You can plot your routes on the dashboard. You can wirelessly import routes from Strava or Komoot or many other apps. And you can change your course on the fly. And this all comes with turn-by-turn directions and, of course, those elevation changes. It's got a fantastic touchscreen as well. And so if the Hammerhead Karoo 2 sounds like the sort of thing that would add something to your riding you can also get a free heart rate monitor with the purchase of a hammerhead crew 2 right now visit hammerhead.io and use the promo code cycle at checkout to get yours today this is an exclusive offer for cycling podcast listeners so don't forget to use the promo code cycle you'll get the free heart rate monitor with your purchase of the crew 2 you go to hammerhead.io you add both items to your cart and use the promo code cycle and those details are all in the show notes too another rider who really defies the traditional stereotype of the cobble classics rider a bit like pogacar in the sense that you know prior to this year we thought about jorgensen and paulus as guys who really thrived in short stage race. well not not pogacar but those two short stage races hilly races i mean Jorgensen, you'd expect to see him at a race like the Tour of the Basque Country that's starting this week um, more than the Cobble Classics, but he's really proved his pedigree in these races this week, hasn't he? I mean, on just on that note, um, I found myself, before the action really kicked off today, just watching how Ineos Grenadiers were riding. They were riding quite impressively in the first half of the race, certainly. They were always at the front. They looked as though they were keeping people out of trouble. <clears throat> then, unfortunately... Ben Turner was one of the riders that crashed in that Philip Magistruk um, incident and he abandoned. But I found myself wondering about Tom Pidcock. Obviously, he'd had a layoff because of the concussion. Where did he suffer the con- concussion? Uh, was that Crashed the last day of Tirreno Adriatico. So hadn't raced until Dwarsdor of Landrum where he was 11th. He said a couple of days before the race that you know he was reasonably happy with how he had done on Wednesday because normally when he comes back after a little layoff like that it takes him a race or two to get into his swing. He did also talk, you know, interestingly we're talking about Pogacar as if, you know, he should be, you know, um, you know, genetically unsuited to a race like the Tour of Flanders, but Pidcock did say that 
the smaller, lighter riders with less power are at a disadvantage. I mean, obviously, Pogacar's not as light as Pidcock, and yet we do... We do this is what yeah, I was coming we, to. We yeah. do include Pidcock in the conversation, and, and rightly so. Uh, yeah, I mean, I did. I tried to check this earlier, but it's very difficult to check the weights of riders before about 1970. But I think he would be easily the lightest rider to have won um, or to win Tour of Flanders if it was ever to happen post-war. Um, you know, the lightest, the, the other one that I was thinking of was Michele Bartoli, and he was 65 kilos, similar weight to Pogacar. But yeah, Pidcock, well, he certainly looked pretty good uh, up until the Koppenberg and then well seeing where he finished he finished eight minutes down so he clearly ran out of steam but I'd be curious to see what his um, what his verdict was on his own race yeah I was wondering about uh, Paolo Bettini maybe I think probably about the same weight as a Tom Pidcock and uh I don't think he, well, he, he finished top 10 in Flanders mm-hmm. a couple of times, but ne- never yeah, on the podium, yeah. was he? Um, so no, it, no. historically is difficult for the lighter riders, but, uh, well, Pogacar is kind of ripping up the script a bit. I mean, uh, to be clear, there probably is, what, seven, eight kilos between Pidcock, Pidcock and Pogacar, but, um, well, they, they all count, Daniel, they all count. That challenge he set himself, um, put on a couple of kilos in order to be able to win Paribay, do you think that you'd... Um, think that that's a challenge that you'd be able to rise Absolutely. to Absolutely, I could give him some tips. Uh, I can recommend some lovely Belgian beers if he well, if he wants. Well, it looks as though it looked as though the Belgians um, the Belgians were already trying to give him a bit of a hand at the just after the finish. Within minutes of the finish, they presented him with a punnet of chips and mayonnaise, <laughs> fruits and mayonnaise, Here we go. Um, which made me which made me grimace because I absolutely detest mayonnaise. Oh dear. Funny uh, in po- Tom Pidcock's press conference, he did say uh, in, with this question about weight, he did say, "Well, I'm not going to be able to gain ten kilos in you know a couple of days. Um, maybe that's what Pogat." Char's going to do he's going to be a surprise addition to the Paris-Roubaix start list next Sunday I doubt it but I could give him also some recommendation for chocolate shops in Bruges I dropped a few euros in there this morning oh well they're all all fantastic they're all fantastic Um, Belgian chocolate versus Swiss chocolate where do you stand on that Uh, oh good question Belgian chocolate's a lot fancier, isn't it? Belgian chocolate yeah it's, it's sort of this is kind of filled pasta versus what well, the Italian's called pasta shuta, dry pasta, isn't it? Yeah, very fancy chocolates and uh, all in very nice gift boxes. But anyway, I'm, I'm digressing. I'm taking my mind back to the start in Bruges this morning where, should just say, Daniel, before the race, um, we were invited up onto the podium by the organisers of the Tour of Flanders. When I say we, I was joined this morning by Richard Moore's brother, younger brother, Peter, and by very good friend of the podcast, Charlotte Elton. And the Tour of Flanders wanted to uh, recognise Richard Moore's work. Of course, Gent-Wevelgen, which was the last race that Richard covered last year before he passed away, is a Flanders Classics race as well. And uh, it was a lovely moment. Um, Peter said a few words and uh, the the crowd gathered, huge crowd in the Grotemarkt in Bruges this morning at sort of 8.15 in the morning. Uh, A very warm round of applause. And, well, we certainly appreciated that and the gesture from Flanders Classics was much appreciated by everyone here at the Cycling Podcast. It was lovely of them to do that. 
Lionel, we are going to be back later in the week, are we not? We are. We're going to be joined by Francois Tomazo to look forward to Paris-Roubaix and just pick up anything that we might have missed from uh, the Tour of Flanders this afternoon. Probably quite a lot. Poss- very possibly, very possibly. And of course, we're, we're going head to head with uh, Rose Manley and Lizzie Banks, who are recapping the women's race. I won't spoil the result of that for those who uh, well, don't want the result spoiled for them, but they will be discussing the women's edition of the Tour of Flanders in a parallel episode of Arrivé. It's kind of a, a sprint finish to see which episode gets online first. So we should wrap it up there, really, Daniel, shouldn't we? Plans for this evening? Uh, I'm going to meet TV's Rob Hatch, the voice of cycling for a Belgian beer in Ghent. And then I'm going to take my haul of chocolates back to my Airbnb and uh, look forward to... Stuff your face. (laughs) (laughs) That's good night from both of us. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burney.